books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it's actually going to be pretty awesome. I mean, you hear those two books and you think, no thanks. <laughs> you know, how about Leviticus? Can we do Leviticus? <laughs> no, but you're going to be shocked. We're, we're looking forward to this in a lot of ways. We've been looking at it for months, actually. It's a colorful uh, and instructive um, historical narrative, really, that, that shows um, how the people of God, having lost their temple, also lost their way. And they're finding their way back. Not only are they rebuilding the temple, they're, they're, they're rebuilding and finding their way into a new covenant with God. Uh, and through it all, they realize the core of maybe all of their problems really rest in their own hearts. So they're finding their way to a new heart. Um, he's going to come up and launch into that in just a couple minutes. I just wanted to make some sort of transitional thoughts, if you will, from 2022 to 2023. I'll only be a few minutes here. I'll read quite a bit here because I want to just, I, I want to make good use of the time. Um, but we're looking forward to that and looking forward to Adam here in a minute. So as the, as the new year comes into view, right, I, I, I find myself glancing over my shoulder. Um, I'm, I'm trusting in the new things of God, but um, the things that have, are behind have some instruction to be sure. Um, and you probably do that too. And as I look back, not only over the last year, but maybe even the last 10, 15 years, I find myself deeply grateful, deeply grateful. And I'd like to, I'd like to make you a promise. Maybe that's really more of what I'm doing than anything else right now. I'd like to make you a promise. But before I do, let me, let me back up just a little bit. You know, as, as we ventured in to start uh, Vista uh, out of Heritage in Westerville 16 years ago, uh, Tammy and myself and my boys, who were eight and ten at the time, <laughs> um, we knew we were letting go of some very good things, uh, rewarding things, um, uh, comfortable ministry and community, really, in many ways, and not just the, us, the dozens of others. We were taking some risks. We were letting go of some assurances that we had. Um, but the sacrifices we were making, we knew were going to open up um, opportunities for new faith, uh, uh, new friends, and, and, and new frontiers. Nothing was guaranteed. The first few months, even years, left us with sobering questions about our viability. I was reacquainted with all of those emotions over the last two or three years. We've all felt it. Where are we going to be when this is over? I was thinking back on those things. We wondered then, and I've wondered recently, if God would continue to build this local community, this church. And back then, I wondered who would it be if he did. And I wonder the same today. Only time tells. I could never have imagined who Vista has become and all that you have accomplished. I couldn't have hoped to imagine it. Just in the last year alone, you know, we've discipled and are continuing to disciple 99 children, <laughs> 99 kids. Nearly 2,500 people heard a clear and refreshing articulation of the gospel through song and word and movement in our Christmas program. You've led people to Christ and we've baptized them. You've cared for one another through your friendships and your friend groups in countless and truly profound ways. We've added Adam and Emma and Caitlin to our staff. 
We nearly miraculously acquired a second ministry hub and a Northwest place of worship. And we are excited to gather together there next week. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> a bunch of people are out there yesterday writing verses on the floor before we put down some carpet. Uh, Ron Roman has been leading the charge in a fashion it has been unimaginably good. We are so thankful for him. Many others working week in and week out, putting chairs together, all sorts of stuff. They are getting the place in shape. And we aren't even close to beginning the renovations on that place yet. And it's been undergoing. It's just phenomenal. So looking forward to that. Bloom has flourished, no, well, maybe pun intended, toward, uh, toward independence. They will be an independent 5013C as this, week, uh, this year wears on. Numerous ministries have emerged out of the bridge. You successfully helped Sharon uh, Kozar transition to stateside uh, ministry obligations to frontiers. The last few of our children in the Cambodian home will be in college this year. For those of you that know them, that's Timote. He'll be in college next year. <laughs> and two more churches, you helped two more churches launch in Kenya. What you've done in just a year, truly phenomenal. I am so grateful. Your personal pursuit of God, your ongoing contributions of time and talent and tithe have literally made all of this possible. Even more meaningful than these things is who you are. I am so grateful for who you are. A true family, a true worshipful, loving, relational, missional family, and becoming more so and more so as God leads us. You're a group of God listeners who don't just hear God, but you obey, and you're helping others to do the same. As a church, you have been unorthodox in practice while remaining orthodox in your faith. You have allowed the simplicity of the gospel to unify us among many differences. You have emphasized heart transformation ahead of behavioral modification. You have emphasized authenticity ahead of branding and marketing. You've been honest about your journey toward maturity through difficult circumstances, failures, and tragedies. You've endured long seasons in rental spaces and even seasons of no space. You have given away resources when it would have brought no criticism to keep them. You've believed that resources and tools and spaces are wonderful and helpful, but they're not absolutely necessary in advancing the gospel. You have advanced the gospel no matter what our circumstances have been. I am so grateful. You're just one of many small communities among the global movement of God advancing the gospel of Jesus, but you are distinct. You're making a unique impact in a unique community, in a unique way. I am so grateful. And I promise, we as a staff promise to advance your gospel-oriented, people-loving, mission-driven ways. 
I promise to facilitate you becoming more and more worshipful, relational, and missional. And I promise to do that in three ways, particularly. Number one, to value you. In alignment with God's inexhaustible love for you, I promise to appreciate you and believe in you, which isn't hard because I already do, more deeply than you know. But as I tell my wife, I fail to express it as often as I should. But I value you, and I promise to continue to believe in you, followers of Jesus, to make a difference in your world. I promise to equip you, to provide you a clear pathway of your discipleship and the discipling of others in your life. Promise to offer you a healthy rhythm and expectation of your time as you're involved with this church. And I promise to help you be productive in your missionary work, personally and for us corporately. You will be critical in making the hubs that we have acquired, the intersections of ministry and gospel advancement, and we'll work together, and I'll lead you to be productive in using these things for the glory of God. So I promise to value, we promise to equip you, I promise to lead you to the ever-changing gospel's edge of reaching more in biblically grounded but culturally effective ways. That's my promise, to value you, to equip you, and to send you Let me encourage you to come and hear more about those three things in greater detail the third Thursday of this month, January 19th. We're actually going to introduce this equipping time for you, and it'll happen every third Thursday of almost every month. Love for you to keep your eye on that space. Even maybe clear that out even from from your group involvements or make that your group movement that week. We're going to just try to focus on that space and equip you as best we can and lead you and value you there. So please come. We'll talk about some organizational, financial, and, and hub-type overview things too. So that, that kind of stuff will happen there as well. So but please consider that. All right, Adam, you ready? Um, bring Adam, come on up here. You want to bring that thing with you? You need that? So this is Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we launch into it. Adam, you ready to go? Got some stuff you think we might want to talk about this morning? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Can you make it tie into some of that stuff and just talk about? You know, I actually am feeling very much like God is leading because like all the music and everything. I, like, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that. I felt like, like we could up in that song and in that verse. And I felt like we could have just stopped after the worship should. and said, go. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Tammy said, go home and reach Psalm 23. So yeah. I thought she was wrapping it up. She should. <laughs> I think that's fair. I will at least say this. If I say too much, I will apologize in the end. And uh, hopefully God will use whatever is said. But I do want to echo some of the things that have been said and, and, and say amen to it. Uh, for instance, just the sense of how good it is to worship with you. Um, and, and be reminded that things are being made new. It's good to be reminded of that truth. You know, the calendar has flipped, and the days are getting longer, 
very imperceptibly, but eventually it'll be 10 o'clock and your children won't go to bed. It's just, it's just, it's getting, you know, there is renewal. Um, but I'll say quite often in my heart, it's more complex than just that. It's, it's sometimes difficult for me to dwell in the house of the Lord on the newness. Maybe even particularly this time of year. Yeah, it is a new year. And for my family, there's like eight birthdays in like two weeks. Honestly, there's lots of newness. Uh, although for me, it's less and less new, right? For my children, it still feels new to them, right? Pip, uh, she turned four a couple of weeks ago. Today is my wife's birthday. Yeah, it's true. And the cultural liturgy tells us it's a very important birthday. I won't tell you which one. But the world would like us to know that this one's important, you know. In the midst of all that, though, there's other memories that creep in. And maybe sometimes I should be more careful about at least how I remember them. For instance, last week was uh, the five-year anniversary of a pretty disorienting event in the life of my wife and I's marriage. Um, January 4th. Five years ago, she was experiencing some pain in her stomach. Uh, being the amateur doctor that I am, I quickly diagnosed it as appendicitis. I've seen this before. I know it's appendicitis. And we had actually uh, nine children sleeping over at our house that night under the age of, I think, eight or nine. <laughs> it was quite a crowded house. And so I thought, well, we can't leave the kids and... So I had a friend accompany Jess to the hospital to check on the pain. And it deteriorated from there. Uh, she found out that she was pregnant. We didn't know. It was an ectopic pregnancy and had ruptured and she had to go into emergency surgery and very strongly felt alone. Right? All the details went haywire. They went the wrong direction. They're supposed to all line up. Right? In the story of God, all the coincidences are supposed to be able to be discernibly good. But in this case, we just so happened to have nine children, and we just so happened to have you know, a guy who probably should not have been making generic <laughs> diagnoses. Right? All these terrible coincidences led to a very dark moment. It, it, it felt disorienting. Like, how could the story, how will this make any sense? This doesn't seem useful. It doesn't seem like it could be possibly meaningful. I bet there's some of you out there who have a similar ache in your heart. Maybe it happened recently in the life of your family, and you can't at least yet, see how God can make it a part of his story. That's how I felt five years ago. This is not useful. How could it possibly play a role in my good or God's glory? It all went wrong. This is, this is only and ever will be deleterious. It, 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 will, it, will, it will do harm. I can't see it. I can't see there being any good. It felt like desolation. Now, I, 
I readily admit that there was pretty quickly on the heels of that desolation, I, I readily admit there was some consolation. Rather surprised news a few months later that we were pregnant with Pip, which we didn't think was a possible or a part of the plan. Uh, yes, consolation. But what are we to do when we move with wounded hearts into spaces of consolation? There was still this old pain I was carrying with me, even into a new season. I didn't feel new. Maybe I was being consoled, but I didn't feel new. And I know the same is true for my wife. I'm not sure yet if you could even say that it's completely healed. You ever heard that phrase, the body keeps score? You ever heard that phrase? Like the body has this way of remembering those moments of desolation. I know Jess feels it in her body. I feel it too, and it's like imperceptible to the calendar. I, I wonder, why am I having such a hard day? And then I, ah, oh, it's January 4. Now I, I remember, right? So desolation, and yes, I readily admit consolation, but still <laughs> this challenge. But yes, it's a very complex time of year. For, for instance, last week wasn't only just the memory of that pain. It was also Epiphany. Epiphany was on Friday. Epiphany is the day where the church celebrates the arrival of the, the wise men, as we call them, who've arrived from the east and come to honor the one who is truly king of kings. And they choose to honor Jesus over Herod, and they make all the right choices. But it's interesting to ask ourselves, even in this moment, how do they know to come? Like, oh, yes, I get it. There was a star. That's good. But how do they know to be looking for a star? They're from the east. They're, they're from the area that Babylon once had power over. Persia had power over. They're from the area that the Jewish people had been dragged into exile towards. That's why they knew to look. They had been impacted by the Jewish people who had sought the shalom of the city they were in, even in the middle of exile. And then 500 years later, a star appeared and they knew what it meant. Can, can it be that God works in history? Can it be that even in the middle of desolation, God writes a story that's worth reading. Author's faith. Can it be in the middle of all these twists and turns and broken spaces that God is still making things new? I think the people of Israel can relate to that question. People of Israel, even in the midst of the books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is actually historically a single book, actually, they can relate to begging for the eyes to see how God was going to bring himself glory and them good in the middle of the desolation. Their desolation was quite pronounced, I'll tell you that. Their identity was shaken by the exile by the loss of the temple, by the loss of their yearly rhythms, all of those things were shaken to their core. In fact, the temple itself was torn down 
to its foundation. You can see this disorientation, this desolation in their writing. It's good that they were willing to write it down. Maybe the most famous psalm that they write about their desolation, their loss of identity, their disorientation is Psalm 137. Here they are along the riverbanks in Babylon, and they're weeping. They're being mocked by their captors. Their captors want to hear a song from the, from the temple that had been destroyed. And so they say this, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. They're actually singing a song about not having a song to sing. They describe later in the psalm the, the roof of their, the, their tongue sticking to the roof of their mouth. They have nothing left to say. They're completely disoriented. But if they're being honest and patient and humble, they can also see how this is actually a part of the story. Because what they're experiencing in Psalm 137 had been foretold. It had been prophesied. Jer Jeremiah had warned them, this is coming. You're, you're on the wrong track. And you're so far off track, you're going to have to be stopped in your tracks. We're going to need to make you stop and recognize reality as it is. Uh, maybe most famously, Jeremiah does this in chapter 7 of, of his book. It's called the, the, the Temple Sermon. Because the people of Israel kept saying, look, we're good. We have the temple. The temple's good. We, we, they, they keep calling it the temple of the Lord. And, and Jeremiah says, yeah, but you don't honor it as such. We have a real problem here. This is what he says. He says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Telling yourself everything's good. He says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods of, to your own harm, then I'll let you live here in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless because what were they doing? They were oppressing the widow and the orphan. In fact, they had taken up the Canaanite pro, uh, uh, the, the, the kinetic practice of child sacrifice. Can you imagine them saying to themselves, we have the temple of the Lord, the, the Lord's on our side. In the meantime, child sacrifice. Can you imagine? They were so far off track. In fact, in, Je in Jeremiah 25, uh, Jeremiah says, listen, the cup of, of wrath is coming. It's full to the brim. It's going to spill out on you, and it's the Babylonians who are going to be carrying it. This cup will not pass because you have failed to see what's true about you. There's this, there's this unwillingness to humble themselves and walk humbly with their God. So they were taken off into exile. But in the middle of this exile, in the middle of this pain, there is consolation. In the middle of the desolation, there is consolation. They had a memory. 
this, this, this faint memory that says, wait. In the end, it will matter how faithful God is, not how faithful we are. In the end, it will be God who carries the day. They had a long memory of this. It's in fact the only thing worth remembering, what God has done and will do. That's it. That's what a sanctified memory looks like. A baptized memory says, what has God done? What is he intending to do? But they had this memory, Deuteronomy chapter 30, all the way back to Moses, it says this, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, even if you've been carried off to exile from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous. He uses this phrase that Paul picks up on. God will eventually circumcise your hearts. He'll, he'll make your heart new, pure. In fact, the same Jeremiah that told us, look how far off track you are, had poems of consolation too. In the very middle of the book of Jeremiah, there are three chapters. It's literally in the middle. The, the Hebrew prophets are amazing. In the very middle of the book, in this book about wrath, in this book about evil and how all of these things are falling apart is this poem of consolation. And in the very middle of the poem, which is in the middle of the book, is this phrase. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the central statement in the book of Jeremiah. In the middle of this desolation that they have brought, that they have caused, is consolation. God's faithfulness will win out. So you can imagine their excitement when the years took their course and Babylon fell. Like Jeremiah said it would. Like Isaiah said it would. Like the story had been written long ago that this would take place. The years will take their course and Babylon will fall. And you can imagine their excitement when that meant that a new power had come to play. And this power was uh, the, the Persians. And, and a man named Cyrus took over and was moved by God to have a very different policy regarding his neighbors. In fact, historically, he's called Cyrus the Great because of the way he considered his neighbors. He made a proclamation in the first year of his reign. It says this, in the first year, this is Ezra chapter one, verses one through three. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, when things were potentially new, when the calendar flipped, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, see how the Israelites do have some eyes to see how this will be made right. It says this, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, it's actually, he's saying Yahweh here. He doesn't honor Yahweh as he should, but he recognizes the existence of Yahweh. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. To, to allow these people among you to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. He's saying, I'm going to let you return and rebuild. Imagine their excitement 
when they start to realize things can be new again. Their joy was overflowing. You can see it in Psalm 126, which is a poem that they wrote when they were returning. It's called A Song of Ascent. When they're finally ascending the Temple Mount again after 70 years of exile, after all these distant memories which had tortured them were now being made whole, they said this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were full of laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Remember how they used to sing songs about having no songs to sing. And now they're singing with this overflowing of joy. Things are being made new. There is consolation. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And so they're, they're very excited because they think this is the renewal of the entire story. In fact, here's what they begin to do. They begin to recover their sense of identity. They, they look for their lineage. They want to link their story to the story. And they say, what's our lineage? And so you can look at Ezra chapter 2, and what are you seeing? You're seeing a genealogy where they're talking about where they came from, who their ancestors were. In fact, their genealogy is different than it might normally be. Normally, they would just say simply something like Joshua, son of, and they would just say who their living relatives were. But here, they're talking about distant memories, distant lineage. And they're saying, remember Maybe even remember how God promised Abraham that his lineage would be secure. Remember how God promised Abraham's lineage, the land. Remember, it's happening. It's happening. And so they did overflow with joy. Here's what it says in Ezra 1.5. It says, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites there's strong sense of lineage. Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Not only are they emphasizing their lineage, but they're emphasizing a restoration of the liturgy. The first section of Ezra is about six chapters, and it finishes with the, with the celebration of the Passover. All of this, their joy is overflowing because they can restore the liturgy, the rhythms, they can see how things are made new year after year, and they can experience it as the people of God. Their, liturgy, their lineage and the liturgy in place. And it doesn't stop there. Because just like the Exodus, when they were the people of God brought out of Egypt and given a liturgy, even before they left Egypt, they're told when and what to celebrate on a rhythm. They're given a liturgy, and then they're given the law. This is what it will mean to be the people of God. And there in Exodus chapter 19, at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were given the law that would operate differently than other people, where, where their neighbors would be life-giving. It wouldn't be competition at all, but only consolation. And so there's a focus on law. It's very subtle at first and then more and more Impactful. The second section of Ezra is when Ezra is the leader and he's a scribe and he's going to reinstitute the law. But there's a subtle hint of it even in chapter 2. Here's what it says in verses 1 and 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town. That's their land. It had been promised to them long ago. They're returning home. In company with Zerubbabel, 
and Joshua. Zerubbabel, if we do our digging, is a descendant of the King David. But maybe more interesting for our purposes is Joshua. Now, this is not Joshua who led them into the promised land. This is Joshua who is the great, great grandson of Hilakai. Hilakai is the high priest who rediscovered the law and brought it to Josiah the king and said, here is who we are as people. The book of the law recovered and restored and the people of God renewed as they followed the law. The, the, the author of Ezra, Nehemiah here, wants us to know they're gonna reinstitute the law. They won't have to be under the law of the pagan kings anymore and their organization, it will be the life-giving law that they had come to love under God. So their lineage remembered, their liturgy restored, the land possessed, the law reinstated, but something was missing. In the midst of their consolation, their old broken hearts were still being carried with them back into the promised land. Something's not, not quite right. Not everything had yet been made new. Here's how I know. It's how the book ends. Ezra and Nehemiah, fascinating organization. It starts with this sense of renewal, the joy of God's faithfulness being put on display as they rebuild the temple and worship God as they were always meant to. And remember that they are of a lineage that God had blessed and protected and reinstitute the law and repossess the lands. But something still missing, something not yet made new. And Nehemiah is brokenhearted about it. We get to the end of the book and Nehemiah says this. He comes back to Jerusalem and he sees that the Sabbath is being desecrated, the temple is being desecrated, that they, they have made it a place of business. Nehemiah actually gets pretty upset. He says in chapter 13 that he beat up some people and he pulled out their hair. He got real mad. He got real mad because all of these hopes were crashing down again. He says, don't you remember? This is the story from before. This is why we were dragged off to exile in the first place. This is why there was a cup of wrath in the first place. Why are you going there again? What is the biblical proverb? Like a dog returning to its vomit. So he says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things that are... So that our God brought all this calamity on us and the city. Now you're stirring up more wrath, desecrating the Sabbath, disrespecting the temple. What had been promised, the law being written on their hearts, hadn't yet been accomplished. The descendants of the King David were back in place. The law, the temple, all of these things were right. But there was one thing that had not yet been accomplished. They still had a heart of stone rather than a heart of flesh. It's how Ezekiel puts it. 
Jeremiah in chapter 31 said, he will write his law upon their hearts. It will become so natural to them to live out the law. They won't even need teachers of the law. It will be their nature. But it isn't happening just yet. It had been promised, but not yet accomplished. Here's how Ezekiel describes it. He, he says this in chapter 36, verses 24 through 28. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. Check. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The, the rhythms of purification in the liturgy. Check. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. It had been true. It had been true for a moment. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is still dangling, still yet undone, a thread that hadn't been woven back into the tapestry of God's history just yet. But there is one, one that Ezra and Nehemiah points to who would accomplish this. And his followers had eyes to see it. His name is Jesus. His followers had eyes to see it. They said, that's right. The promises of Jeremiah 31, they're coming true in this one. The, the, the promises of Ezekiel 36 are coming true in this one. He's the one who has given us the lineage, the right to be called children of God, as John chapter 1 puts on display. Yes, the lineage secured by Jesus and expanded so that you and I could enjoy it. He's the one that shows us the liturgy of worship as he says to, to the woman at the well, we will worship in spirit and truth. Not on this mountain or that, but in spirit and truth. A renewed sense of where and when to worship in spirit and truth, that is to say always. He will put a new law in our hearts. Paul says, here's what Jesus did. He circumcised our hearts. Remember Deuteronomy 30. Paul is saying all those strands of law and lineage and liturgy, all of it's coming true. It's all being woven together by Jesus. He's the one we had always hoped for. He's the one about whom they would sing the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Perhaps you sang that song just a few weeks back. Yes, a new law put in our hearts and grant us a new spirit within us. That would bring more than just consolation. It would bring rejuvenation. It would bring resurrection. Paul is astounded. He says, the old is gone. The new has come. I am a new creature. I'm not just one who experienced desolation and consolation. I am one who is seeing rejuvenation, the very fruits of the Spirit, what we might describe in Latin as renovare, Renovare is a word that carries with this the sense of restoration, the, sten the sense of being made new. That's what we're going to call our series. That in Jesus, we are made new. We are renovated, new creatures. And why is it that Jesus could accomplish this and no one else could? Because that cup of wrath in Jeremiah 25 was swallowed down by Jesus. The new covenant that they had been dreaming about 
was brought forth from the soil of Jesus' sacrificial death. This is how we were given the right to be called sons and daughters of God and given the ability to worship in spirit and truth and given a new law to love one another. Yes, lineage, land, liturgy, law were all in place, but what was needed was a love, a new law, something accomplished by Jesus. So in Luke 22, he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember this. Behold, the former things are gone. Remember this. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. What Ezra and Nehemiah could only dream about, you are experiencing, is being fulfilled in your presence here and now. The, the, the cup that he prayed to the Father about and said, if there's any other way, could we have this cup pass from me? But the cup he so faithfully bore so that we could be made new. And so what happens? Well, Luke has a sequel. It's called Acts. And everything they had dreamed about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11, where all the nations would come and experience the truth and be given new hearts and be made new, it happened. Born at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The pillar of fire that had led them through the desert was now resting on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just those who had been consoled, but those who were being made new. And they began to speak in other tongues. The Spirit made that possible. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. All the nations are coming. Read Revelation 7. Read Revelation 21. They're all coming. Every knee will bow. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Each one hearing the truth of a new covenant being put on display because there was one who took the cup so that our sins could be forgotten and that we could be made new. So as we travel through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're reminded of what truly makes us new. And yes, we need a liturgy of worship. It calls us back to ourselves year after year. And yes, we need a law, a new law of love. And yes, we need the lineage that Jesus has accomplished for us to be called sons and daughters of God. Yes, we need all of that. But we need to remember it only happens in Jesus. So here's what I'm asking you to do as we go through this series together. First, resolve to remember nothing but Jesus. Paul says, I resolve to know nothing amongst you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And why? Because it's to Jesus that all of history had pointed and from Jesus that all subsequent history flowed. He's the one worth remembering. Because in his grace, all our failures are forgotten. Resolve to know nothing amongst each other but Christ and him crucified. 
Let there be a new law of love among us. Give thanks. There is a needed altar, an altar of thankfulness. The foot of the cross where we bring our thankfulness for what God has done in history. Taking our moments of consolation, bring, sorry, desolation, bringing about consolation and then ultimately rejuvenation. Beg God for the eyes to see it. Because when the people of Israel saw it, their songs erupted and overflowed with joy. So that's the third thing. Give thanks, but three, ask for the eyes to see how he is moving in your personal story. The, the scriptures are a single unified story about the faithfulness of God and the rescue of his people. But the story is alive in you. Your story belongs to the story. It's another chapter in the book about God's faithfulness. But perhaps like you or like me, you might have trouble from time to time seeing it. There are things that are true in our world that ought not to be true and they can blind us or disorient us or discourage us. We will need to ask for the eyes to see. But here's the wonderful thing. We're asking the one who gives sight to the blind. We're asking the one who opens the ears of the deaf. We're asking the one that makes us new. We're asking the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who is rejuvenating, renovating us day after day, year after year. Let's do those three things together. Let's not give up meeting together in the midst of it. Let's pray. Lord, you write a good story. And we recognize that we cannot accomplish the story. All we can do is participate in it. And we're blessed to do it. We pray for eyes to see the story that you're writing as you author and perfect our faith. We pray for a, a new spirit within us, one of thankfulness for the way that you took the cup, for the way that you accomplished a new covenant and gave us the right to be called children of yours. So we pray for eyes to see your authorship in all things. More than consolation, Lord, we, we desperately need resurrection. We need to be a new creature. Only you can do it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.